0: Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge podcast. It's the place we talk to exceptional people about the things that make them tick, exploring their life successes, lessons learned, daily habits and secrets, what helped them to get where they are, and how they stay on top of their game. Hey gang, it's Andy, and it is time for another podcast episode. It is the the beginning of the second week of the Whole Life Challenge. And uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update for me personally. Uh, I have been ketogenic now for a week. I have struggled. I'm going to tell you my, my, my high, high points and low points. Let me, let's talk about high points first. I feel great. Um, I've been blood testing. My ketone levels are in the one to two range. And my blood glucose levels and usually, I'm testing at least two or yeah, you know, at least three hours after eating anything. Um, my blood glucose levels are in the 70s, which is a great uh, ratio, and uh, I feel I've got energy all day long. I, I feel really, really good. There's no, there haven't been any real downsides. My mental clarity feels great. Um, the only thing that is giving me fits is my gut. I am. I've not been able to control the, how do you say this uh, without being too graphic, uh, the runniness, <laughs> there, there goes the graphicness uh, of my, of my elimination. And uh, I've been trying a bunch of different stuff. I have not yet tried, I, I was thinking of trying something like a psyllium or something from uh, some fiber. Uh, I, I don't want to upset the balance of carbohydrates um, that I'm intaking. So I don't want to just start eating fruits and things with, that are high fiber. But um, I'm, I've also been looking into the possibility of supplementing with HCL. Uh, I'm not sure. Just trying that out during my meals. I've been taking a digestive enzyme. I'm taking a, um, another product that's a probiotic supplement. So we'll see. I'm I'm giving it some time to see if my system can adjust to this higher fat concentration in my diet. As far as the rest of the whole life challenge is concerned, I'm I'm feeling fantastic. Um you know this the the challenge really serves me in just keeping me on a track that makes me feel good. I I actually feel great when I'm when I'm accountable. And I also enjoy not being accountable. So for me going eight on and then eight off and then eight on and then eight off really, really works well. Um, I always make progress during the eight weeks on and I've been exercising daily or at least accountable for some version of exercise every day. I've been stretching every day. Um, I've been, I've added journaling back into my, my morning routine, although I didn't get it in this morning. And, uh, It's going really, really, really well. So hope you guys are are enjoying it as well. Um, I have a... So this week in the challenge, the lifestyle practice is something we call the big four, which, which is going to, for many of you, is going to severely limit. Severely, maybe that's the wrong word. But it's going to limit your time spent in Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Because we're only giving you one chance to go a day. So the idea is that we work on the in, stopping the incessant checking. Check, uh, look, I'm guilty of it too. This is where this came from. Um, going back in to see how many likes you got. To see how many people are engaging with you. To see what the comments are like. Once you go to Facebook each day or Instagram each day, you can stay there as long as you want. Um, but it's one session a day. So plan it and use it wisely. But I, I don't have a podcast guest that specifically deals with the use or non-use of social media. But I have a great guest that you can listen to given the extra time you're going to have this week. Um, he is a, how do you describe John Durant? He wrote a book called The Paleo Manifesto. It, it came out before a lot of the more popular diet books came Along The Paleo Diet Books came along, and it's not a diet book at all. It's more of a philosophic book. And the parts of the book that I enjoyed the most were the beginning, the first couple chapters, where he really takes an evolutionary approach to the history of, of man around nutrition and around eating and around habits and around um, the shift from being a hunter gatherer, gatherer world to being a industrial world mo- moving into that realm. And the exploration is fascinating. I loved the first few chapters. I mean, I loved the whole book, but John, uh, I invited John on the podcast. He happens to live, uh, very close to me and, uh, he's connected in a lot of the same circles that I am. And, uh, he was, he's just a great guy and he's a fantastic guest. We talk a lot about evolutionary biology, biology in the podcast. I'm not going to go through all the things we talk about, um, because you can just listen to the podcast. So, um, uh, let's just bring him in without further ado. Here is John Durant. So John Durant, welcome to the podcast.
1: Andy, thanks for having me on.
0: Good. I, I I always go through this at the beginning of every podcast. Is when do I start hit when do I hit record?
1: Yeah, we were already getting deep into it.
0: We were getting into it, and you're like, should we just rec- hit record? I'm like, yes, yes, we should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how you know it's going to be good.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, we we were talking about because I I try to do my research on on the people that come on the podcast. I mean, I do do research, uh, but I try to read their books if they've written a book and you've read you've written the Paleo Manifesto, and uh, I've ri- I've read about half of it, and I was just telling you that I've went back to look through my highlights and I have so many damn highlights (laughs) that I only got halfway through the highlights this morning when I went to review what we were going to talk about. So, um, it's fascinating book. I mean, I, um, the, the, the evolutionary biology, not even biology, just the evolution of man and the, the way you kind of go through the way we've created the problems that were, that were, we've simultaneously then try to solve, um how we've been in a massive experiment basically since the dawn of time yep uh inadvertently yeah uh uh it's just fascinating well and
1: you know there've there are so many paleo books that have come out and many of them are great a lot of them sort of repeat similar things over and over and i knew that I wanted new material in there, so that it wasn't, so that the paleo stuff was covered well. But look, there we have an evolutionary history that went before the Paleolithic, and there's much that happened since the Paleolithic. And I wanted to capture that whole breadth of of history, mm-hmm. um, of where we come from, where we are, where we're going. I mean, so you know, I start with rather than starting, you know, just with like a caveman story, I start with these obese gorillas be back right. in McColo in, in, in the Cleveland zoo. And, um, it's, it's amazing. You go, you know, kids go on field trips to zoos all the time. Or what a lot of them don't realize is that a lot of the animals in zoos are obese, have heart disease, a lot of the same chronic condition, chronic conditions that humans have. In mm-hmm. fact, the, the, um, the number one killer of male gorillas in captivity is heart disease. Wow. Um, And particularly of males, male gorillas in captivity, which Mm -hmm. is the top killer of male humans in civilization. Mm -hmm. They'll go into Mm -hmm. cardiac arrest in the in the equivalent of gorilla middle age and they'll drop over and they'll they'll die. Um, And and so, you know, these these zookeepers, they don't adopt a paleo approach. When I visited the Cleveland Zoo, I didn't hear that word once aside from, you know, me talking about what I did. Um, but what they do is they, you know, like, duh, they look at what those animals eat in the wild and how they live in the wild. And then they've started to do their best to mimic that in captivity. That may seem obvious, but you go back and look at the history of zoos, even until very recently, and people were not taking that approach. I mean, I went back and looked at records of what were fed, you know animals and zoos and uh, you know throughout history it was common to feed them candy, alcohol, bread, popcorn, basically whatever junk food humans were eating it at just the makes
0: time. no sense i it, i I know i mean i you're right, it seems like duh, I don't need to be a zoologist or a or a veterinarian to tell you that that's what you should do but yeah really? but
1: but but like look like king King Kong just came out right mm-hmm. and um up and up until the 1960s, it was a fairly like widespread notion that gorillas ate meat because they had fearsome teeth and they were big and they were strong. And you know, if you look at the early King Kong stuff, um, he he was a, he was a man eater, um, and didn't have the big distended gut, um, that well, not distended, but large gut that herbivores have to digest all that plant matter. Um, and And it wasn 't until you had more um, you know biologists going over to Africa and traveling over there and taking pictures and bringing them back like jane goodall mm-hmm. and until in, that 's when we started to realize what their diets actually were yeah. so in' <laughs> this is amazing so in the in uh, the Rome Zoo in like the late 1960s that what was typically fed to the gorillas they 'd start with um, Uh, tea with milk and biscuits in the morning as if they were Italian, right? Right. Like, we're just going to give them what other Italians have for breakfast. (laughs) And then there was some plants. There was some, quote, monkey chow, which isn't what monkeys actually eat, but, um, you know, and a little bit of fruit and stuff like that. And then in the Dallas Zoo, in addition to some plants and monkey chow and whatever, they were being fed horse meat and jello,
0: And, of course, they would eat it. I mean, they're, yeah. they're not particular. They're like my dog, Odie, my, my little pug, who will are, eat anything.
1: Animals are opportunistic. Yeah. And so even obligate herbivores in the wild, if they come across something, they'll nibble on it. They'll try to eat it. They can sense that it's food. Um, and, and so they'll eat and gorillas eat insects and stuff like that. But, you know, then you, you get animals that can be obese. And it's not just the food that they eat. It's also the eating frequency. So, uh, another fascinating parallel from zoos <coughs> is, you know, gorillas like other big herbivores need to eat all day long. They have evolved to eat all day long. They just munch on this low density plant matter, um, all day. And in, 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 at the Cleveland zoo, they were. Is that f-
0: cause they need the calories or they need yeah the-
1: pl- plant matter, like leaves and, and stems and stuff like that. Th- they are not very nutrient dense and right. they don't, they're not calorically dense. Um, and so they just have to eat a ton of it. Right. Um, and you know, whereas meat is very nutritionally dense, calorically dense. Um, so in, in the Cleveland zoo, as in most other zoos, they were, they were being fed up until recently, these gorilla biscuits, which Mm -hmm. were basically fiber bars from hell. Um, I've, I've eaten one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: The things we do Research for science, for right, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> um,
1: didn't taste good, you know. Did it
0: do anything to your insides?
1: I didn't. I had like half of one. I didn't okay. notice anything. Yeah, um, but they can eat these real quickly, mm-hmm. and and they'll eat a whole bucket of them in twenty minutes or something like that in the morning, and then they have nothing to do all day. And their body has like an impulse, like, oh, I should be eating, I should be eating, I should be eating. Was
0: that the pulling the hair thing that that was the behavior? They they were picking their hair,
1: they were plucking their hair to -hmm. the point where they would get bald spots. They would regurgitate the gorilla biscuits and then eat them again over. They would vomit them up and eat their vomit over Mm -hmm. and over again all day long because they just had this strong impulse to be eating all day long. So they shift their diet to all plants and they can eat all day long. And, and and so even even if you put what they're eating aside the eat, the eating frequency was screwed up, mm-hmm. you know, and there are obvious parallels to humans on the flip side in the Tulsa zoo, they had um some obese lions, five obese lions, and they were being fed. You know, once a day, six days a week, a bunch of horse meat, like a horse meat mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, wild lions, their eating is more sporadic. It could be every right. two days, every five days. It just sort of depends. Depending on the kill. The season, the kill, <clears throat> right. um, where they are in the pecking order, stuff like that. And um, and And so they did this cool experiment where they would feed them the same amount over the course of a week. But they started to randomize the days and the feeding times. And um, would feed them. You know, they might, and they could fast for up to like three days, but they would still get the same amount over the course of a week. Mm-hmm. Blood work improved, weight lowered and stabilized, mm-hmm. behavior like intermittent they, fasting, like intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not just what you eat; it's how you eat it and when you eat it that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, you know, th- these are very uncontroversial topics when you're talking about other species when you're talking about other animals um and it's not such a charged debate like you have with human health and human diet where everybody has an opinion um there's so much madness out there like this proliferation of diet books is a sign that we have failed that is not a sign of success we will have success when there are five new diet books coming out every year Mm -hmm. instead of five thousand um you know that that's a sign of 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 The problems that we're having. But one of the things that initially drew me to the paleo approach and the evolutionary approach, and and when I say that, I don't mean paleo in terms of an exact list of foods that you can or cannot eat. I'm talking about more of an approach to say, here are the categories of foods we've eaten for a long time. That's probably a pretty good guess for what we're well adapted to, Mm -hmm. plus personal experimentation and all that. But but what I love about this approach is it generalizes to other species. You know, that that was the f- one of the first things that struck me when I was trying to start to improve my own health and, in my 20s um, was I was like, I'd look at all these diet books. And I'm like, well, what does that have to say about other species? Because if, if you can't, if your notion of human biology is strictly about humans and you can't talk about gorillas or lions or, or dogs or anything else, You have a pretty narrow view of Mm -hmm. biology, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then the question becomes, what about humans as a species? How do we evolve and where do we come from? Mm -hmm. And that sort of shifts. It's only at that point in my book where I start to talk about the paleolithic. Um, Once we've already sort of set the stage and and once I got people to buy in, I basically tricked them into buying into the approach before I even called it paleo.
0: You mean the, the, the chapter is about the gorillas?
1: About the gorillas. Yeah. I don't even use the term. And
0: they're like, oh, right, yeah, of course
1: right. you should do it that way. And I'm like, okay, right. now what about humans? Right. People are like, shit, I'm locked in.
0: Well, I think the the also the, the tracing the history of how we went from, you know, the, the ramifications of 10,000 years ago when we went from nomadic tribesmen to living in close proximity to one another in large groups. Like – the 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 challenges that came with that. There were good reasons why we went from a hunter gatherer, you know, species or not species, but a
1: existence existence yeah.
0: to a agrarian farm. You know, we ha- there, there there were it necessitated some things. some it,
1: changes. It it supported more people, <clears throat> and it and right. it and then you know that leads to specialization and civilization and all that sort of stuff. So. Even if, you know, people got, it's very clear in the archaeological record, you know, skeletons that were pre-agricultural revolution and skeletons that were post-agricultural revolution. So one of the cool adventures that I get to do in the book is Harvard has this incredible private fossil archive of very Mm -hmm. rare fossils. Mm -hmm. And I got a little tour of it, and I got to hold this eighty thousand year old hunter gatherer skull. I in think my you hands.
0: talked about that, Dr. Lieberman. To yeah, that. yeah,
1: yeah, Dr. Lieberman. He's known for doing some of the research on barefoot running or yeah. mi- minimalist running. Yeah. Super funny guy, incredibly sharp, and he's head of human evolutionary biology there. But you know, this this skull had a beautiful, almost perfect set of teeth. It hmm. was missing, you know, wisdom teeth came in, teeth came in straight, was missing one tooth due to an abscess. You got to hold this? Skull? I got to hold it. Wow. I mean, I had to wear gloves. Yeah. It's covered yeah. in arsenic because mm. that's how they oh. used to preserve it. So, um, it was holding, I was holding it over a table so that,
0: don't drop, ever, don't yeah, drop don't
1: drop. It. But man, <laughs> oh one of those moments where you're, where your like hands start to tremble a yeah, little right. bit, right? When you don't want them to. Right. Um, it was just like this priceless human artifact. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: similar size to our skulls?
1: Yeah, yeah, similar size. Um, perhaps actually a touch larger. Hmm. Um, there, with the agricultural revolution, our brains and skull, our craniums, actually shrunk a little bit. Wow. We got shorter. We lost anywhere from four to six inches of height. But this guy was about 5'10", thick bone structure, um, looks like he was healthy right up until the end, mm-hmm. don't know how he died, um, found in modern-day Israel, um, and you know it like it's just shocking to be like this guy had perfect teeth, no toothbrushes, no dentist, no toothpaste, and I'm not recommending that people go stop doing that if right. they eat no. paleo, but um <clears throat> his development was you know was was proper, it was biologically appropriate.
0: We have no idea how old he was when he died or thirties, uh,
1: thirties
0: okay, so he's but, relatively young, I mean he's not going to get cavities that a sixty year old would get. Correct. At 30. Correct. So, right.
1: Um, and and it, it, it didn't look, it, it, this guy did not die of, it did not look like he died of a chronic condition. Right. It looks like he died of something else. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but then you go look at these skeletons, uh, you know, post agricultural revolution mm-hmm. and it looked like they had horrible nasty lives mm-hmm. it just looked like a miserable existence
0: similar age so we're 30 year old
1: but now like 52 instead of 510 teeth riddled with cavities mm-hmm. you know jaw, smaller jaw um, not all the teeth came in missing teeth
0: and you you witnessed you oh, were yeah. held holding it. these held it held it it was amazing it's very obvious yeah. it's not like it doesn't take an expert oh
1: it doesn't take an expert at all that's that's the first thing they look at uh, you know, archeologists is the teeth. Hmm. And if the teeth are worn down and sort of polished by little bits of stone in whatever they're eating, cause it was stone ground, everything. Um, they're like, Oh yeah. Post, post agriculture, miserable, short squat person riddled with disease. Yeah. Post agriculture.
2: Wow.
1: And, and, and that's just immediately upon glancing at it. There's no like fancy scientific instrumentation required. Hmm. Um, so that, you know, that was, that was remarkable. And, and, and then, you know, moving, um, you know, moving into cities and agriculture, you know, we started to talk about this before we hit, hit record, but, um, when, when people, I, when I started the book, I was obsessed with diet, right. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, do focus on diet a lot in terms of this was the main thing that hurt our health this during this transition. Um, when we started living in, in cities, Infectious disease was actually the biggest health threat, yeah right. no knowledge, no sanitation, no knowledge of hygiene <clears throat> um, you know're you 're sharing a room with a goat right um, right you know animals running around uh, no, idea, no idea what germs were, no idea what, we didn 't know you know this that this didn 't happen until
0: like the 19, oh, late nineteenth century yeah
1: um, and uh you know even something like hand washing. Right was not formally discovered until the late 19th century,
0: which which is you know the the fascinating exp, exposition. Exp, what do you say? i lost. The word expose. <laughs> expose of the of the Jewish culture and the mosaic law and how they had it nailed three thousand years ago before we knew any there was any evidence of these things.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. So so the chapter is called Moses the Microbiologist. It's my favorite chapter in the book. Yeah. You know, people read it and they're like, "How did this end up in a paleo book?" And I'm yeah. like, "Well, I wanted stuff in there that wasn't paleo." Yeah. And and this th- inf- so um,
0: yeah. If, if you're out there and you want to read one chapter of this book, go download the Kindle right now and read chapter three, chapter it's, four, oh, chapter four. Yeah. yeah. I thought, whatever. doesn't matter. Yeah. Go to that chapter. Yeah. Read that chapter. It's just fascinating. It's fat. If you, if you have any fascination with history and with, you know, it's just fascinating.
1: It, um, I, yeah, I spent more time on that chapter than like the next three combined because mm-hmm. it's easy to look like a fool if you start, you know, pontificating about religion. Right. Um. Right. And, but, but let me sort of set the stage for that. If you go back 5,000 years, right, you have no knowledge of germs, hygiene, all this other stuff, but people are dying of infectious disease a lot. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's people in the prime of their life, they catch something and four days later, they're dead. Um, Back then... And and and, it, and there's like invisible causation because germs are usually invisible mm-hmm. um, and they spread via all these different mechanisms. Somebody sneezes, somebody touches today, somebody touches a doorknob or whatever, and you can catch something. Sex, you know, food, spoiled food, things like that. Hygiene. Hygiene. I mean, um, yeah. And, and so if these people are dying back then, you would probably be like, well, they're being struck down by the gods or God.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you had enough people paying attention to the types of behaviors that could, could result in disease and dying. Um, You might have a group of people like, like the Jewish people and some other early religions. You you might have a a set of cultural practices that emerge where you have a scientifically sound hygiene code. And that's, what's really remarkable. I went back and read the, 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 Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And after Genesis, it's really remarkable how much the rest of the Torah is concerned with this purity code. Hmm. Um, And there are three injunctions for Jewish priests or Jewish people to wash their hands, you know, after they are near a graveyard and a bunch of other circumstances, but it was interpreted as um, after sex, before eating, after eating, after going to the bathroom, in the morning, at night. Like, basically, it became this... um, it, it appears to have become this hand-washing cult.
0: And is hand-washing sense. literally back then just water, just rinsing your hands over with – like what What did they do for hand-washing?
1: Yeah, it, it seems like it was water and then something to dry it on.
0: So it's just rinsing your hands off. Yeah. It's not like any yeah. special soap. They didn't have soap.
1: They didn't have – well, there in, – in some early manuscripts from the Middle East and Egypt, <laughs> there do seem to be some like soap-like substances that were known um, – you know, but it's it's not like grab a bar of Dial soap. And, yeah, right. Um, and and even in um, <clears throat> in Islam, um, you know, Christianity and Islam being offshoots of of Judaism, um, you have to wash your not just your hands but your forearms five times a day before prayer. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't have water, um, like sand or some sort of like dry earth hmm. is is an acceptable substitute. And so what I what I pose. In that chapter, and I'm not really the first to propose this, but I sort of stitched it together and added some novel ideas. But what I propose is that perhaps the the custom of prayer, it, it's not that you had to wash your hands in order to pray. Perhaps that prayer as a regular daily practice emerged as a mechanism to get people to wash their hands, right? Wow. You flip it around. Right. So... You know, to give a modern analog, um, you know, kids brushing their teeth, right? So mm-hmm. four or five-year-old kid doesn't really understand germs. And so, the you know, a parent will say, um, basically, you have to do this twice a day. Otherwise, bad things will happen to you, mm-hmm. right? That's, it's basically a command from on high. Like, yeah. they're not going to really understand it, mm-hmm. but they need to do it, and it's important. Otherwise, the teeth will get riddled with cavities and bad things will happen. And a lot of the injunctions in the Bible are basically like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you need to follow the Sabbath, all right? So every, you know, every seven days, you need to wash your clothes, you need to clean your house, you need to show up um, at the temple, which is a place of extreme cleanliness. It's like the cleanest place in the town or the village or the city. Um, and, and so there's a whole set of hygiene rituals that are, you know, that are entailed by celebrating the Sabbath. So in some sense, and, and if you don't do it, the punishment for not observing the Sabbath is death, right? right. You know, that was that was like the literal punishment for that. So, you know, it's, it's sort of strange that you had to have such an extreme punishment for what amounted to a vacation day. Like right. usually you don't have to <clears throat> punish people to take a vacation day. Right. So it suggests there was some other, you know— You know, people say other symbolic reasons, Mm -hmm. um, religious reasons, but But, hygiene. But but what if? But what
0: What, if? What if? The whole purpose was to get people to actually live longer. Right. Like to not die from disease. Correct.
1: And so if you have a group of people like the Jewish, you know, Jewish people, and there were some Zoroastrians and there's some other early religions that have purity codes. But if you have a group of people that follows a more or less scientifically sound hygiene code, so not just hand washing, but um, bathing, uh, food inspection rules, Certain types of sexual uh codes
0: utensils, the way they use you know clean yeah saints, cleaning dishware yeah
1: um uh you know things that were moldy or showed signs of contamination, having to either cleanse cleanse them in certain ways or um even their soldiers were told that when the you know when they were in encampments they had to go outside the camp to go to the bathroom and right. then bury their refuse right. um in the ground um and and militaries are i mean disease is in many wars has been the main cause of death yeah um and so if you have a group of people that follows a roughly scientifically sound hygiene code not everything's going to be accurate right like touching a woman who's menstruating doesn't actually right. transmit disease but right. like Anybody emitting bodily fluids, it's probably wise in that era if you don't know any better to mm-hmm. think this is probably a time to like not contaminate mm-hmm. or get contaminated so if you have a group of people following it and nearly everybody in the community does it because that's a real important with infectious disease because it's right. a network effect it's a right. network phenomenon. One person drops a rat into the well it, it everybody's gone everybody's right? gone yep. so you need almost complete compliance, but then your mortality will drop mm-hmm. and it will look, it might look like you're favored by God. It might look like right. you're the chosen ones. Right. Um, and then if sinning is defined roughly as unhygienic behavior and the notion of sin or something being unclean, was a little bit broader than that. But if it encompasses that, then people who do sin would be more likely to contract Disease mm-hmm. and thus look and d- like they're being struck down by God. Yeah, right. So it creates this really new, interesting hygienic equilibrium. Hmm. Um, and and what I think is novel in the book, if you permit me a little uh, self promotional aside, <laughs> um, the uh, is this idea that you could have an emergence of a monotheistic God at the beginning of the Bible. It, it other gods exist. And they're in conflict with one another. And the Jewish God is one among many. And then eventually over time, that's like the only God that exists.
0: Is the beginning, I've never read the Torah. Is the beginning of yeah. the Torah the, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament?
1: Yeah, it's Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. And I'm not sure I got the order right. For I think three
0: Numbers, Deuteronomy. Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it goes on to other stuff.
1: Yeah. So, um if, if you have – you know if, if you have a god that promulgates a, a, quote, one true god that promulgates a scientifically sound hygiene code, that god and that god's rules are actually functionally incompatible with other gods that promulgate unhygienic behavior. So if there's some mm-hmm. other god that says you need to have sex with prostitutes in the temple and that is the way to holiness – well, that's an unhygienic behavior. You're going to catch an STD real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are going to die as a result. So that, that, that other God is actually incompatible with your God mm-hmm. and your God's beliefs. If there are other gods that say that cannibalism is okay or tattooing, you know, like, can you mm-hmm. imagine? Like, people were into tattoos back then. Take some, like, rusty blade or something that hasn't been cleaned. And, and and you start like cutting your body. Mm-hmm. That is a real fast track to a nasty infection yep. or gangrene or something else and
0: death and death yeah
1: and death. So <clears throat> um, so there could have been a dynamic where once you get this more hygienic e- equilibrium established, your your god and your god's rules and your your religious culture is actually incompatible with everybody else's
2: because
1: mm-hmm. it used I mean it used to be. You look at the Egyptians, you look at the Romans. You know, they would conquer people and they would just add their gods to the mix, yeah. right? And, yeah. and they'd be like, all right, we conquered you. You can keep your gods, whatever. And what was really unique about the Jewish God was, it, you know, it was, it was a jealous monotheistic God that yeah. couldn't get along with the others. Um and, and I basically argued that that was grounded in a, a very real scientific sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: in in this scientifically sound hygiene code.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's— yeah, and then and then the the result in the Christians then thinking when the Black Plague came around that you know the jealousy and the yeah so the judgment based on you know why are you the chosen one what are you doing to us you're, right you're the, you're the cause of this because you know yeah
1: yes so Jews got scapegoated during the yeah. Black P- Plague and it's i I was really looking for hard data on this, and you know I would probably need to go over to Europe and look in archives and other languages but it it's well established that that Jews were scapegoated they were accused of poisoning wells and yep. things like that, but <clears throat> Jews also paid very close attention to their own water supply right. because it was such an important part of. Hand-washing, yeah. bathing, and, and there were rules that if water in an enclosed container became con- contaminated, the whole thing was contaminated. Yeah. Um, so Jews would put covers on their wells. Oh, good public health idea. <laughs> right. Protect your water right. supply, Right. right. Um, and and so it seemed as if Jews were, you know, this is just all these secondhand reports from back then that yeah. Jews were less affected by the Black Plague, and so people thought there was this nefarious, you know, plot, whatever. Yeah. Um, all the all the typical canards, but um, the uh, if if they actually were behaving in a more hygienic way, they just would have been less affected by disease. <clears throat> by disease, sure. one sort of in between the two parts we talked about. <clears throat> It's, it's interesting to go back and look at the New Testament in light of this. And one of the big disagreements that Jesus had with the Pharisees was actually over hand washing, where Jesus and his followers, and it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and maybe Luke, um, they didn't wash their hands before eating.
0: Hmm. And Jesus— Did he make a thing of it? It was a thing.
1: Pharise- the Pharisees criticized them for it. Uh-huh. What, what, Jesus's point was actually a, a very valid one. And his point was it's more important to love your neighbor uh-huh. than all of these arbitrary rules, yeah. basically, over what you can eat, who you can eat with, what you can touch, all this stuff. He's just like love everyone. Yeah. Um, and so he was making a moral point, uh-huh. a valid moral point. And, and even the fact that he would like talk to prostitutes – and other lowlifes, part of the reason why that was scandalous is because you weren't even supposed to touch them or be in proximity with them or, or lepers and things like that. Um, They were just excluded generally from, from society or or proper society. Um, And so he was making a moral point, but the flip side is like, guess what? Hand-washing is in fact important, right? Right. And we recognize that today. And. <clears throat> when Christianity spread, it was during the Roman Empire and the, you know, the Romans actually got a lot right about public hygiene, right? They had aqueducts, mm-hmm. they had public baths and mm-hmm. people had a practice of doing that daily or at least weekly um, and relatively high technology. And, and so disease was actually kept in check in part by, th- by their water supply and, and, you know, some of those technological fixes, yeah. Um, so it spread at a time when the disease burden was relatively low. Right. Um, and it, you, you could have gotten by, by like not follow, following all those rules. Um, so it's a really interesting schism if, if you look at, you know, if you look at how some of these hygienic practices like mm-hmm. caused, helped cause the rift. Um, and even then, it, you, you know, you go forward to like modern, uh, You know political social debates and you know over the last 20 years there's been incredible cultural conflict over sexual preferences and Mm -hmm. sexual behaviors and i you know i when i talk about this i'm sort of talking about it at a meta level not in terms of what's right or wrong or or you know taking a moralistic approach but um you know, if you if you go back five thousand years ago, if you're a woman living five thousand years ago, um, like catching an STD would could be the end of your evolutionary line because sure. women right. bear more of the costs of <clears throat> STDs. M- many, if not most of them, particularly back in the day, if they went untreated, you, um, you could become infertile fairly mm-hmm. quickly. There are parts of sub-Saharan Africa up until recently where upwards of 15% of, of women of childbearing age became infertile due to untreated STDs. So mm-hmm. that's that's like a huge impact. That's yeah. a huge selection pressure for either cultural or genetic adaptations to emerge. So if you, if you look at some of the traditional s- sexual codes mm-hmm. that are often very religiously sort of justified and promulgated, they also tend to line up pretty well with things to avoid STDs. Hmm. Um, and there's actually lots of data on um, cervical cancer in the Jewish population, which was basically non-existent until like the 50s or 60s.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> and cervical cancer is caused by the human papilloma virus, uh, 100% is direct, direct causation. Um, and, you know, early scientific observers noticed that prostitutes would get cervical cancer a lot and nuns wouldn't mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're like there's something going on something going on here mm-hmm. that has to do with you know sexual practices that that caused this and and Jewish women like basically did not get cervical cancer and and so you know w- we can't go back and know the exact reason why but it it's obviously because HPV was not spreading in that population due to right. some combination of circumcision, uh lifelong monogamy, abstinence, uh, s- abstinence social pressure against promiscuity, <clears throat> um all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So y- you know, some of today in today's context some of those rules come across as repressive or or even bigoted mm-hmm. things like that. 5000 years ago, if if you were a woman, um it, it there was an incredible cost to either having sex once with the wrong person, or or that choice being forced upon you, mm-hmm. it could mean the end of your line. Right. So it's
0: from it's, an evolutionary from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah. The the cost is way you know isn't it's it's not compatible with choice. It's not about choice. Yeah. Yeah. Like. like you just don't do that,
1: yeah. And 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 to you know to to dip into an even more controversial area because I I love that and that's <laughs> that, that's what why not makes life interesting. If if you if you look at if you go back and read the injunctions around homosexuality in the religious books, um, they almost exclusively focus on men, hmm. um, and it, you know if you look at the data, you know men who have sex with men do have higher risks of um you know of of catching certain stds lesbians actually have lower rates of stds than mm. the heterosexual population and so this this dynamic really doesn't have anything to do with homosexuality per se
2: yeah. it's it,
1: that you you take two male sex drives and you pair them together or you take two female sex drives and you pair them together and you just have di- very different no- network effects mm-hmm. of how how something can spread in a population
2: yeah
1: um and and so I think for some people you can be like, oh, some of the hatred that was targeted towards you know, men who had sex with men back in the day, it, it, at least I think it probably originated because if, if, if that behavior before condoms, before knowledge of hygiene, if it did lead to catching certain things more often and then dying or getting sick – People would look at that and say, "Oh, that person's getting struck down by God." Mm-hmm. Well, they're not getting struck down by God, right? Um, so, it, it, there, you know, I
0: well, there was a justifiable—they—they they suddenly had justification from something bigger than what anything they understood. That's right. And they had God on their side. That's right. And now we know that that's just you right. Know, it's not insane, right? It, it might be true, but we have ways to protect from that, and we know that we know. You know, there's Correct. a lot of things we know today. Correct. But back then, you know, if you still carry those same l- literal translations of the Bible forward, that's where you get into these that's
1: where you get into really trouble.
0: controversial yeah. areas.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I I delve into some... Can you tell us already that not the typical paleo book? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was really my next question is, okay, so people have been listening to us talk about the, the evolutionary history of man, yeah. a lot of re- uh, religious, you know, history. What... What did you learn um uh, you, you know you said you got into writing the book because of you were interested in diets? What did you learn from writing the book what what have you taken and applied in your life and said, you know what this is what I learned and this is this is how i'm gonna do this this is what I do now
1: it um I mean, I learned a lot about writing books <laughs> and and the horror I hope show it was
0: more than that, yeah,
1: the horror show that it can be <laughs> yeah um for me, you know there was one of the things that was very useful as I sat down to write the book was I wanted stuff that five years from now or 10 years from now, I could go back and look at my recommendations or what I talked about and still have it be accurate and true. And that was a good exercise because it made me less dogmatic in how I think about diet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, with any, one of the things I learned was like with any, any new health question, I have a standard approach now for how I, quickly try to figure out what is probably the right answer. First of all, I look at other species. So if we're talking about fasting, if we're talking about cold exposure, if we're talking about movement, if we're talking about light and sleep Mm. and all sorts of lifestyle factors, I first look at, okay, how does does this manifest in other mammals? Mm. How does it manifest in other species, eating frequency, stuff like that? And that gives me like a good first pass approach. Then I look at the Paleolithic, and I'm like, okay, how did hunter, hunter-gatherers hunter do it? And then I look at more recent agricultural civilization, and that's when a lot of these cultural traditions bubbled up
2: mm-hmm. to help
1: us deal with this. So so any cultural tradition related to food, diet, stuff like that that's been around for a long time, I, I typically just go with it. I just, I just sort of trust it, um, whether it's fermentation, mm-hmm. um, whether it is – religious fasting practices, I don't need a perfect scientific explanation for me to think "Eh, there's probably something to that. Um, And then in the industrial age, which came after agriculture, that's like that's like the rule book for what not to do. Like we Uh, killed ourselves in so many ways with industrial foods, sugar. um, Well, I thought
0: the distinction you make between processed foods and industrialized foods. Yeah. I mean, that's a critical, I mean, I've, it's the first time I've ever really heard that. And I don't know how that's possible because I've been reading and studying this stuff for years, but it's the first time I heard it put that way. Like it's really the industrialized food that we don't that. We want to avoid not processed food because processing of grains that leads to whole grain bread isn't the same as an industrialized, enriched food like Wonder Bread.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, even chewing is a form of processing. Right. Cutting is a form of processing. So this may sound like a little bit nitpicky about the word, but it's it's an important distinction. Yeah. There are forms of processing that make your food healthier and better for you, Right. Um, and but we just use the shorthand "processed food" to refer to all this stuff. W- what's really the problem isn't processing per se. It's it's these industrial processing te- <clears throat> techniques or yeah. industrial ingredients that only entered our diet over the last 250 years, and that we are in no way, shape, or form adapted to. Right. Um, you know, we've had uh, what you know five to ten generations of, and sometimes less. Of dealing with of our metabolism sort of dealing with these foods
0: like cheese whiz like cheese whiz I love your little paragraph on cheese whiz <laughs> think of the, immediately think of the Blues Brothers
1: yeah got, got my cheese whiz boy I, I still need to get an authentic if I were in Philly I would still get an authentic cheese steak
0: oh you from know. Gino's or Pat's yeah with cheese whiz we we my son and I went back to Philly last summer and we went to the corner with both of them they're on opposite corners of the same intersection yeah and we had one sandwich from each. We didn't do a perfect test because, you know, dumb me, I didn't order them the same way. One right. of them, I got the vegetables on or the onions on and not vegetables. They're, they're I don't know what they are. I yeah, they, yeah. But, um, and the other one we didn't. But my son came away thinking Pat's was brilliant and Gino's wasn't so. But, you know, who knows?
1: But you know, and, and that is one thing I came away with is if I am, particularly if I'm exploring another culture, if I'm traveling, if it's a special occasion, I really do not sweat bending the rules. Everybody's a little bit different and some people really do have to toe the line on sugar or gluten. Otherwise they like fall back into bad habits, but you, I mean, you got to enjoy life Mm -hmm. and you don't want to drive yourself crazy with, you know, trying to maintain standards using discipline that you just can't do over the long run. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so, so with these foods, I, I, I use the term now industrial foods more than I use the word processed foods. Right,
0: right. It makes um, a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. <coughs> so, um, you know, learn that. The, um, what else did I learn? Man, I learned a ton. I, I, I still think fasting, intermittent fasting is underrated. Even though it has been written about, in practice, I still think for most people it's dramatically underrated. Yeah. Um. Even if it's a sixteen-hour like compressed eating window of eight hours and sixteen hours of of nothing.
0: Do you practice that today? That's um, something you do?
1: I over the last few months I've not been good about it. But if you know if I've had a weekend where I flex more or had too much alcohol. Um, my typical pattern would be to fast on a Monday mm-hmm. and it, I feel like it resets my body.
0: 24 hour fast or.
1: Yeah, I, I do 16 to 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I, I, once did a three day fast with water and, and unsweetened tea. I was actually at a monastery, which I thought was like a cool, I wrote about it in the book, cool place to do it. Um, and that was a great experience. Um, And actually it got easier the longer it went on. Mm -hmm. Like it got harder. You know, the first day was familiar territory. Second day was a little bit harder. But like partway through the second day, it just got easier and easier and easier. Mm -hmm. And I, by the way, I can totally see how fasting was viewed as like a religious experience. Mm -hmm. Because like day three, you know, based on reports I've heard, it felt like a mild psychedelic experience really yeah
0: only by only in three days it's not that long
1: yeah by the end like middle of the third day i um interesting effects i noticed um got a little bit cold so my you know my body was turning down the thermostat to conserve energy yeah um because heat is actually the biggest source of energy expenditure not movement yeah um my skin felt amazing. my teeth felt amazing, of course, I'm not eating sugar and carbohydrate and whatever, so you know the bacteria on my teeth weren't 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 being you know we're,
0: we're not being fed
1: we're not being fed right um, the um i i you know I didn't want to move a whole lot. I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of like sit in the sun and mm-hmm. was very contemplative um, even reading was too much mm-hmm. exertion. Mm-hmm. I just sort of wanted, I felt like a, like an alligator sitting in the sun, hmm. um, but it, it was a really neat experience. And, and, you know, there are, there are probably four or five different like major ways in which fasting is beneficial.
0: And um, when you, when you tell somebody, when you meet somebody uh, who wants to experiment with fasting, what do you, what do you tell them to, how do you tell them to start?
1: I mean, the first question is, are they a sugar addict? Um, right. sugar addicts have a real hard time with it. And if people have a lot of sugar in their diet, I recommend they first, that they don't fast initially right. and they Let's switch, get rid, the sugar. get rid of the sugar, switch to a higher fat diet or just lower the sugar content.
0: And when you say a sugar addict, do you mean candy bars or do you mean hidden sugar? Like, uh, um, it could be
1: both. Okay. It could be orange juice, um, breakfast cereal, you know, with skim milk, which has a, a lot of sugar in it. Yeah, which, um,
0: which a lot of people think is my, I'm eating a healthy breakfast. Yeah, I'm, going, yeah. I'm going to eat special K and or product 19 and, and skim milk. And right. it's a great healthy breakfast.
1: Yeah. Glass of orange juice. And I'd
0: call that a sugar addict. Yeah. Like, like you would.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, if, if somebody starts to get intense cravings every few hours for some type of carbohydrate, whatever it is, that, that is what it's I would a sign that that's a sign. Right. Um, and those people do not, in my experience, do not do well jumping right in right. to fasting
2: because
1: right. you know, your body can turn to fat for fuel, but if it hasn't done that for years yeah. or maybe your whole life, it like it, it's a shock to the system. Yeah. So that's you, step
0: you could one. Do, you could do it, but yeah. it's going to be tough.
1: Yeah. Um, part two would be do it on, you know, do it on a weekend or a day when you don't have to work, mm-hmm. um, or you don't have to drive around. Um, you know, the first time, <clears throat> you know, 16 hours is not that hard, right? It's like—
0: If you include the time you sleep. If you include—yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so you, you, you start after dinner?
1: Yeah, you start after dinner, and, and you don't eat until lunch. You know, if, if, if right. you—
0: Which, how many—I guarantee you, most people that are listening to this podcast have done that it's yeah. some, in some way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah, so, you know, if, if you keep your, your eating for a day between 12 and 8, mm-hmm. um, and then you don't eat from 8 until 12 the next day— you know that's, done, si- that's 16 it. hours, right. and then doing 18, it's it's just not that big. It, it's not that big of a deal.
0: Do you count? Um, you know, not, You know, is it is it water that's really the only thing that's? Can you have caffeine? Can you have? Do you not want to do that?
1: Um, I think water is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. I I'm definitely against these juice cleanses where people are drinking a lot of sugar water yep. all throughout. Um. I'll have some like green tea and occasionally if I'm fasting and for whatever reason I'm tired and I'm at work and I need stuff, I'll have some black coffee. Mm -hmm. But I think it's better to use that period to just try to like, just go simple and do water. Mm -hmm. Um, People do different flavors. Some people, there's some high fat things that supposedly don't throw you out of ketosis and other, but like water just seems simple to me. Like I like to keep it simple. Um, The uh, you know and and then you can gradually increase you know the time that you do it and 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 there there are you know a couple other caveats. Men seem to get a better result from fasting than women do. Mm. I'm not entirely sure why, but it seems clear that female fertility is Mm. negatively impacted by fasting because basically the woman's body, which is intelligent, Realizes that resources are scarce, and so it's a bad time to have a baby. Hmm. It's like you don't want to have a baby during a famine, right? Or when you're on the move. So, like you, you talked, all these female Olympic athletes, none of them are having their period, right? Um, and that is that's actually a woman's body functioning, like in a sense, functioning properly, right? Because the body is saying, "Shit, we're on the move, we're migrating. Bad time to become immobilized by a pregnancy, right?" Um,
0: or to have your period or to have your period. Right.
1: And so, um, you know, a lot of women have the experience where they're, they're chronically dieting. So they're chronically restricting calories and nutrients coming into the body. They're doing too much cardio every day. And then they're stressed out at work or with family or things like that. And they have difficulty getting pregnant. And then they go on vacation They indulge more, they Mm -hmm. eat more, they relax relax. and, and, and they don't, they don't get on the treadmill and grind themselves to death and bam, they get pregnant, you know, in like a week. Right. Um, and, and so you need to think about how the body is intelligent, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, to understand how it's working. Um, and then the other caveat with fasting is there are some people who have, uh, micronutrient deficiencies and, our appetite is definitely informed not just by calories or macronutrients, but micronutrients. And your body knows if you're deficient in zinc or whatever, it, it might tell you to keep eating, not until you get enough calories. You'll, you'll go way overboard on calories, but until you get enough zinc or whatever, you know, whatever the micronutrient is that your body's craving. So if, if you have very persistent hunger that doesn't subside after your typical mealtime, you may want to explore whether you have a micronutrient
0: deficiency. Do that through blood tests? <laughs>
1: you can do that through blood tests, and um, and then just, you know, like, if, if you if if you remove a bunch of grains from your diet, which I advocate, um, and eat nutrient-dense foods like bone broth or <laughs> sardines or liver, I'm gonna mm-hmm. jump right into the exciting, tasty sure, ones. Sure, cool. Um, I was on a panel. I was on a panel a couple months ago. There are a couple like plant-based entrepreneurs and vegans on the panel, and we went down the panel. And they're like, "What's the one superfood that people should integrate into their diets that isn't there yet?" And people are like, "Dark leafy greens and then, kale and other stuff." And I'm like, "Liver, <laughs> <laughs>
0: sardines, yeah, yeah."
1: Um, you know, do that, um, and and that should probably solve the the micronutrient deficiencies, and it should get easier, but. Um, those would sort of be my, those would be my tips on fasting. And, you know, in terms of length, I feel very comfortable, very confident recommending 16, 18 hours to like 24 hours. And those Mm. are the lengths that you typically see in religions around the world, Hmm. whether it's Buddhism, Islam, you know, parts of Christianity, Judaism, like all over, um, You hear about occasionally a religious figure doing something for much longer, but the the typical practice is usually about a day or less than a day. Um, So that's my sort of – again, I go back to these rules of thumb where I don't need to like go through PubMed to Mm -hmm. try to answer everything. Um, And and I think it's – this is a little bit more speculative. I think it's probably beneficial to do a longer fast, maybe like once a year Mm -hmm. of a few days. In a more controlled setting, sure. sure. Um, once you've been doing it for a while,
0: what is your approach to uh, exercise in this in this context?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have an approach in terms of my practice right now. I'm terrible.
0: <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> All right, there um, you go. Confessions of John Durant. Yeah,
1: no, I've I've been I've been working too much, and I, and I haven't made um, a good regular habit of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I play once a week in an ultimate Frisbee game, you know, I get out to the beach. Um, I, I walk to work to and from work every day. So I, am so
0: even, even when you're not feeling like you're doing much, you're doing something.
1: Yeah. I'm doing something, Yeah, but I'm, I'm at a point where, um, I'm really focused on fun and some of the workout stuff out there for whatever reason, I just don't view as fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know, I know there are good things that you need to get into a habit of, whether they're fun or not. Um, but like, I don't have to. Uh, there's no psychological hurdle for me to go play frisbee with my friends, right. um, or to play with someone's dog, or go on a walk, or go on a hike. And and uh, you know, I have a little bit of a hurdle right now with, you know, with. Getting into the gym or CrossFit or whatever.
0: What did you find when you were writing the book? I Because yeah. I, I haven't yeah. gotten to a chapter that addresses exercise. Maybe yeah. you don't. Did you address exercise? Yeah. yeah. So or-
1: there's a chapter called Movement. And, um, you know, I, t- I take a similar approach in other parts of the book where first I look at other species. Mm-hmm. And it's like you look at the types of movements that a species has done for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Birds fly, fish swim, and everything, you know, they get proper you know, muscular and skeletal development as a result of that. Um, you know, I dig into play. Mm-hmm. Um, play has gotten some more airtime, but it, it traditionally has been viewed as like a frivolous thing. Mm-hmm. Other species play. Right. Right. Like right. It's little- It's part
0: of their normal development. It's yeah. Little lion normal.
1: cubs will pounce a lot. Right. So play is skill development. Um And, and you'll have like lion cubs will, will play by pouncing and like baby gazelles will play by like running away and kicking. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, and so play is a low risk way for, you know, the young of any species to learn something that's going to be important. So when I see kids playing, that's, that's extremely important. Like that's quality time. They need to do that.
0: Do the, do the mature, the adults in these other species also play? Um,
1: I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think as much. I don't think as much. Ultimate Frisbee's out then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Sorry. You can't have fun.
1: I know. No fun. (laughs) But, um, you know, so I think play is really important and I I do think there's going to, there needs to be another evolution of gyms or, Mm -hmm. or, or spaces where people move to, um, to focus more on skill development rather than just power, strength, yeah. some of these like unit or, you know. Like um, a
0: gymnastics gym. Yeah, like that's a gymnastics a gym. Like the way, that's the way it used to be 80 years ago. If you look at the old, I have a couple old gymnastic books. Actually, I can see one right now on my shelf that you, you look at the pictures and in the 40s and the 30s when they were training the military, these massive, gym gymnasiums and the the tumbling that they would do and the gymnastic vaulting they would do and the climbing they would do and the it's all skill development yeah the the muscles came as a result of doing things that were skill-based
1: right and And, functional
0: and could you do them right and if you couldn't do them well you have to do some sit-ups so you could do uh so you could do a rope climb right know, or whatever exactly
1: exactly so i would love to see um gyms or the spaces where we move focus even more on you know people talk about functional movements yeah. but like there's there's doing crossfit and and these like set of um of lifts and movements but then there's like running a spartan race yeah. where the conditions are uneven the weather is a wild card yeah. um you, you might have some team based stuff um, grip is uncertain and uneven. I'd like I'd like to see more imperfections in some sense or mm-hmm. asymmetries in the conditions we work out in and, and the items we use. Some of these maces that like on sells, mm-hmm. some of those cool maces. Yeah. I love stuff like that because it's not a symmetrical you know, device. Yeah. And, and, and so you, you need to learn how to wield it and, you, and and your body and your muscles need to learn how to compensate and stabilize. I mean, it's really
0: like integrating that. the unknown and the yeah. unknowable and the, the uncontrollable right. in your, in your training, right. which is a hard thing. It's very in hard the, in the normal world. There's some, there's some, there's a, there's a sense of security you get when you know, what you're going to do. You know, the place you're going to do it. You, there, you don't necessarily want that unknown. Right. That's a, that, you know, but,
1: but that's why fun and purpose are so important right. because when you make right. it fun and there's a purpose to your movement, that, that weirdness or that uncomfortability, you know, of trying something new, it falls away. Right. So right. like if, um, I'm surprised that modern gyms don't have more accuracy exercises yeah. where you're throwing something at a target darts or darts yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <clears throat> like i will go into you know when i was younger i would go into like a video game arcade and i could you know shoot those basketballs you know one ski, of those ba- ski ball and, ski and basketball totally, i could do that totally. for hours i love that hours yep. why yeah. is there not something in gyms that is as compelling and engaging to people that's, as good that? question. that's a good question there needs to be yeah. there needs to be and and i don't think it's that hard i mean. You know, I was I was in, um, in in my CrossFit box here here in LA, and you know they had a game which was great, and you know I'd been on the rowing machine thousands of times, mm-hmm. and nobody had ever suggested this game where like you know you start rowing and, and you try and with one last row you try to get it to end as as close as you can to 100 meters yeah we put or some game, target yeah. Yeah, totally. it's yeah it's a fun game yeah <laughs> suddenly i'm not like working out but it's like a game right, and right. then when it's done i'm like i can do it better than that and i right. want to. i immediately want to do it again there needs to be more like that right there absolutely needs to be more like that um and then you know purpose right like um when when you are surviving in the wild or or anything like that, like people don't people don't struggle with purpose in their lives like modern people do, right? And it's because everything is taken care of, you know, for us. And um, when you introduce a sense of purpose to whatever activity you're doing, it just changes the game. Mm-hmm. Like if if you are out on a hike and you need to get back before nightfall, or if somebody's injured, like. All all the all the like little things that we whine and complain about, they just completely fall away. Absolutely. And you don't notice them right. and you have a goal or you're on a team. I mean that's so so purpose is absolutely fundamental. Um you know, one of the things that everybody in CrossFit knows, but that that helped has made make make it so successful is you know, the community aspect, the feeling that you are on a team. So many people play team sports growing up, mm-hmm. um, which are a lot of fun, um, if that's your personality type. And uh, and that was the closest, after college or, you know, after high school, that was the closest that a lot of people got to, yeah. like, feeling they were on a team again. Yeah. So we need to reintroduce. There's, there's such a big evolution of gyms that's still to come. Yeah. Um, and, like, going back to the Greeks, you know, they— they do it outside, yeah. um, and that's also where they would have their sauna and their you know their frigidarium, their cold plunge, and mm-hmm. things like that. Like that was an integrated experience um, of movement and working out and combat sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about having a, a purpose. Like you know, fighters feel so alive in the ring, right? Right, and right. and it's and it's suddenly not a it's not exercise anymore, right? Um,
0: you have to do the exercise to be ready to combat be combative in the ring that's but, right, yeah
1: that's right and and then the the relaxation um the recovery mm-hmm. was also part of that experience right, right there right um like i you know I will often choose a gym by what has a sauna <laughs> like right. if they have a sauna or a steam room, I'm like I use that sometimes I'll go in and just use that mm-hmm. um and so i'd I'd love to see more integrated, you know, integrated experiences like that. And, you know, you look at, um, you look at, uh, uh, what's the TV show? I think it's on NBC where uh, American Ninja warrior. Oh yeah. Um, they're reintroducing fun and purpose into that.
0: It's become a sport of its own. So the accessibility to that has become so specialized that it's not where when it used to be on a Japan yeah. and when nobody knew about it here, it was just kind of a fun thing. You go out and you try to do these things right. and it's now it, it's kind of like CrossFit, you know, yeah. same thing with CrossFit, with the CrossFit games. And, you know, before it was test your, test your fitness. Now it's train for the CrossFit games. Yeah. So it's kind of jumped a bit, yeah. but and, I and, get exactly what and you And the mean.
1: movements and the structures start to become more, uh, I don't want to say monotonous, but more regular yeah. because you yeah. have to measure it to yeah. compare different people. And that's just not how it works in the wild right. or, it, or you know, in that type of setting. Um, but I, I do think with either augmented reality or virtual reality, we're going to start... Um, I think that's going to be integrated into the real world. And we've we started to see that with Pokemon Go, right? Where right. people suddenly were very active and went out all across town to like find their find their pokemon um and there's some companies that are starting to do this but like where you get some sort of virtual reward and score keeping if you climb a mountain peak right you right. know
0: and well they've been doing that with orienteering um uh, with this what is what is it called when they hide a gosh um They'll give a they'll, they won't give a GPS coordinate, but they'll hide boxes out in the wilderness, and you got to go find these boxes. Geo geolocating, geo something like that. Yeah. Um, so that that's been a thing for a while, yeah. but not virtual. There's yeah. no there's no integrated you know web thing.
1: They, when, when I am hopeful, there's a lot of dystopian stuff about virtual reality and the internet these days, and what what's sad about it is we have the smartest people in our society these brilliant engineers, and what a lot of them are doing are basically figuring out ways to addict us yes. to our phones and to our technology.
0: Well, it's kind of like what the Industrial Revolution did to our food.
1: Yeah, hitting yeah. pleasure centers in our brain. Yeah, and
0: how do we get people to eat more in spite of what it does to their health?
1: And, and I like I get addicted to Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. I get and, – and the refresh – I mean, there's a reason why they have the refresh there because it hits that little receptor in your brain, like, oh, here's a new reward, right. and I can hit it every 15 seconds or whatever. <laughs> and and even they found that the stuff that's most addictive is not a regular stimulus, but a semi a, a semi random hmm. stimulus that's like somewhat regular, but it's also like you don't quite know when it's going to happen. Hmm. And these notifications on our phones, that's that's what that is. Right. It's like these these pings and these dings that addict your brain to it. What I am hopeful of is if we can start making healthful movement as fun and addicting as using some of those devices yeah. where, where we can start to say, all right, we know what the reward centers are. Let's harness that for good, for good stuff. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I'm excited about that. And then even something like, American Ninja Warrior, if instead of watching people on this platform in Vegas, you know, that is a little generic and, you know, it's just like a pool of water with a white backdrop, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. If instead of doing monkey bars over water, it was like as a spectator, you're watching it, it looks like there's a shark in the water, mm-hmm. or you're doing a rope climb and it's up the side of a cliff,
2: mm-hmm.
1: suddenly that becomes way more engaging and yep. exciting and enticing and i hope i hope we move in that direction oh that's cool yeah
0: i never really thought about the integration of those two things but that's cool
1: yeah so so we'll see we could end up in a dystopian matrix where our bodies are harvested for energy by aliens.
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> absolutely so okay so my last question because i i um i want to be respectful of your time and i re- so appreciate you being here and being on the show it's fun but um If you were to meet someone on the street first time, you know, and they, and they were intrigued by this paleo thing that they never heard of before, which God help them. I don't know how they haven't heard of it. They haven't heard of it before. What, what are like three things you would give them to, to do to actions they could take, not go read a book or not go, but what are, what are three actions that you could point them in a direction to try on to move in that direction in their life?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, one big thing, which isn't paleo specific is just like cutting out sugar and simple, simple carbs. Okay. That's a big thing. Second is I'd find somebody else in your life that is wanting to make a similar change. Like the community aspect is huge. It's Mm. absolutely huge and form some type of commitment with them or do it together or have fun together. Right. Um, And if there were a third thing I'd, I'd experiment with the fasting. I would I would go for that like sixteen, eighteen hours, and build your build yourself up to twenty four hours, <clears throat> and that's a game changer, because you start to realize um, how dependent we are on this regular eating schedule, mm-hmm. and it feels very liberating to say as a conscious choice, you know what, I don't need to eat today. I have yeah. tons of energy in fat stores on my mm-hmm. body. If shit hit the fan and the electrical grid went out for five days and, you know, mayhem ensued, guess what? I could go a day or two and be a functional human being, protect my family, take care of my loved ones, and not be like a complete wreck. Right. Um, so, the, I mean, I think those would be the three things. If I had a note of encouragement to folks, my um, – a lot of people, they hear the word diet And they think restriction, Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to have to cut things out and whatever. Um, My diet has broadened since I went paleo. Mm -hmm. I eat more things than I ever did before. When you look at the species, the parts of the plant, the parts of the animal, Mm -hmm. um, what I basically did was, and I didn't become a carnivore. I didn't just start eating meat all the time. I don't even think I really increased my meat intake overall. Uh, I increased the quality of it and the diversity of it. I basically cut out. Um, you know, industrial foods based in wheat, corn, and soy. Yeah. Like which yep. is what the the bulk of these industrial foods are made out of. I cut that out of my diet. I added a lot more vegetables and variety of vegetables. I tried new things. I started <clears throat> eating duck. I tried liver. I, I tried bone marrow. You know, I eat way a way bigger diversity of plants. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's actually the reverse. I gave up a few things. Wheat, corn, soy, cup, you know, sugar, a couple other things, and I added all this new stuff hmm. to what I ate. So I don't, I hate the word diet, yeah. And um, I, I want people to view this as a way to increase what they experience, not what they restrict what they experience. Yeah, it's a
0: broadening experience yeah. rather than a, a contracting experience. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I hadn't, um, i hadn't heard it put that way, but the contextually. Because I've heard that experience from a lot of people, you know, and I've had that experience. I mean, heck, I eat a broader, more diverse range. I'm not probably as strict as, you know, I'm probably 80%. Yeah. But I enjoy a tortilla with, you know, my eggs in the morning. Me too. So, um, but, but yeah, I eat a much broader range of of foods as a result of my, the shifts that have gone on in my life.
1: And uh, let me throw out another quick idea. Whatever culture, ethnicity people are from, make some of those traditional foods. Right. Right. And, and get back into it. You know, whatever that special dish your grandmother made or something like that, or, you know, ferment something for the first time or plant a little vegetable garden in your backyard, mm-hmm. um, you know, re-explore some of that. And if it's not strictly paleo, whatever, like it's, right. that's not my my end goal here. Um, you know, re-engage with like, you know, with where you come from and some of those traditional foods. It's, it's sad that... Um, that we've moved away from the kitchen so much, both men and women.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and it is a relaxing part of my day when I when I prepare food. Now I'm a single guy. I don't have kids. I don't have some of the responsibilities other people have. Right. But like, it can be, if you make it a priority, um, many people start to find it meditative, where it's like, okay, I'm I'm you know I'm preparing food for me and my family throw on a podcast um, and
0: put on some nice jazz music, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. For me, for me, it's, you know, I'll take it one step from there for me. Cause it's stressful for me when I'm not prepared. Yeah. So for me, in order to have that kind of state, I need to have a plan days in advance. I need to have, done my preparation my shopping yeah i need to have the stuff in the fridge yep. otherwise it's a train wreck it's yeah. a it's a oh my god what am i doing for dinner i've got four hours i'm at work i gotta you know then there's absolutely no possibility of a meditative state right them. so okay. if i so, do those things then absolutely okay
1: so people need to get a crock pot right it it is so easy to throw like yeah you know, beef shoulder, pork butt, whatever, throw it in there, throw some sweet potatoes, onions, carrots, whatever, I, uh, you know, bone broth or water, something a little bit acidic, perhaps, um, lemon juice or whatever, apple cider vinegar, you know, some spices and, you know, boom, you've just made a meal for six people or right. more right. in 15 minutes.
0: Or for, or for, you know, days with leftovers. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. So, um, You know, I I make a mean roast chicken that hardly takes any effort at all. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you season it, you throw some lemons and some garlic on the inside of it and uh, a little bit of olive oil, throw a
0: little salt and pepper, maybe a
1: little salt and pepper and you throw it in, Um, you know, with, you know, with meat or steak or whatever, you know, uh, sear both sides of it, um, throw it in the oven and, you know, broil it a little bit or roast it for, 10 or 15 minutes, boom, perfect steak. So like, I, I am not a great chef, um, but I have some basic skills where I don't follow recipes. You know, I know how to saute vegetables. I can roast vegetables. I can like, you know, I can do the basics of like cooking a good piece of meat and, and that reduces a lot of stress.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, yeah, th- Those are great. Having your go-tos that you're good at, that you don't have to think too much. Right. You don't need a recipe. Yeah. Roast chicken's a great example. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and honestly, like salt, pepper, olive oil, butter, like a couple go-to herb seasoning things that you can throw on things.
0: Rosemary, thyme, basil. It's all you need. Yep. It's
1: all you need and it will, it will taste, you just got to get the timing right and the temperature right and it'll taste delicious.
0: Yeah, and you'll probably screw it up a few times yeah, and that's okay. Whatever. You need to be, you need to have the Chipotle in your boy, you can go pick up in case you screw up dinner.
1: Let me finish with a story about the first time I made bone
0: broth. Um, I've been wanting to make bone broth for months Yeah, and I've, and I've got it in my head that it's easy, but for some reason the, the taking the next action is somehow hard. It, I it know.
1: Um, you know, it, once you do it a couple times, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. Like you throw it in the crock pot and yep. you have the ingredients and you know, little plug, there are better bone broth companies out there. So I help, I'm an advisor to one called kettle and fire and it's yeah, grass I've had fed. It, or I've organic had and, yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, you know, you can stick that in the pantry and grab it in a pinch. Um, first time I made bone broth, I did not have a crock pot. I just got a big pot and stuck it on the stove, put a chicken carcass in there with some other stuff. Um, water, apple cider vinegar. Did you go buy
0: the chicken carcass from you know like someplace, or how did you? Did you just eat the chicken and? I ate the leave chicken.
1: The... I ate the chicken, yeah. threw it in the fridge or the freezer, and did it the next day. Yep. Um, when you are making bone broth, you want to do it from higher quality animals. Right. Um, you don't yeah. want your like convent- conventional chicken. That's definitely an area where I pay up. Uh-huh. Um, even though I do sometimes eat conventional meat. So I I throw it on there. I put it to a simmer. You know, there's no top on the pot that I'm using. And, you know, I'm like 27, single guy in New York. It's a Friday night. And I'm like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Really (laughs) stupid. I'm like, I'm just going to go out and leave this on the stove.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not. So it, there was no liquid in it, or do you put water? Oh, there
1: was there was water. Got it. And like a tablespoon or something of apple cider vinegar. Okay. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of water in there. I'll be out for a few hours. Right. It's not like simmering. I mean, that
0: there's much. part of me that thinks, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, not not as. Yeah, no. Like, so I get where under this is control. going. So, there yeah. wasn't
1: like anything near the stove. Really stupid. And, and not, I'm like
0: you don't cover the a bone broth when you cook when you're cooking it if
1: it's in a crock pot. Um, Got it. <clears throat> The I don't I don't know the I obviously don't know the right method to use a regular pot okay. on
0: the stove. You're about to tell us, um, yeah.
1: So <laughs> I come back and an unknown amount of time later, but I go out on Friday night and I come back and I open the door to my apartment and it smells like smoke and I'm like, oh shit! Um, and I go upstairs and the pot is still on the stove, stove or you know the the burner is still on uh-huh. and there is smoke billowing out of the pot, all the water has evaporated and there was wow. a blackened chicken carcass and like blackened vegetables. So about
0: a 30 minute, 30 minutes later, God knows what might've happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? So it was winter and there was some snow outside. So, you know, again, this is, <laughs> I'm under the influence of alcohol at this point And like, right. I don't really know what to do and I don't want to stick it in the sink because it's already smoking. So we had a little bit of a porch on our apartment and I took the pot with the blackened chicken carcass and put it out the out on the porch uh-huh. in in the snow in winter and went to bed. And I'm like, I'll get it in the morning. Well, it snowed that night a lot, so it covered the whole pot. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, I guess I'm gonna leave it there for a day <laughs> or two. Three months later, spring comes, and I had forgotten that it was still out there. Uh So there was like this charred pot and blackened chicken carcass on our porch (laughs) months later when the snow thawed. And that was the first bone broth I made. Wow, that's
0: a great story. Yeah, never tried it. You ever done it again?
1: Oh, no, I've done it again. In a crock pot? In a crock pot. Right. Yeah. That's a uh, good story.
0: Yeah. So you can screw it up; it's okay.
1: You can, yeah, and you'll you'll get a good story out of it. But I would not recommend leaving the house with with the burner on. Bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah,
0: John, so. thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. If if people want to find you, I know we've already talked about your book, The Paleo right. Manifesto. Well, um What's a way to engage? You? Do you have a website? Do you have a place you it, hang my, out?
1: <clears throat> I don't blog anymore. Um, my main site is a little it's called wildventures.vc um it's a little venture fund in healthy living that i've started Mm -hmm. so people can check it out there but there aren't a lot of updates i'm pretty active on i'm fairly active on twitter at john durant um but i i tweet about all sorts of stuff so it's not just diet and healthy living but i'm sort of all over the place but uh that's that's how people can
0: reach me cool very cool great thanks yep appreciate it and we'll uh we'll see you out there yeah sounds good cool The Whole Life Podcast is produced by our podcast team, Winslow Jenkins, Becca Borowski, and Ernie Hurtado. You can find all of our episodes, links, and complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. The way that I've found is the best way to listen to podcasts is to subscribe so that episodes automatically get delivered right to your mobile device. You can do that in any podcast app on your phone. And hey, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Patronic, and thanks so much for listening.